The thing about most GP-owned practices is that they really are a purpose over profit business. You know, the, the GPs are connected to clinicians. They, they know what it's, the workflow for clinicians are. From the Medical Republic, I'm Francis Wilkins. This is The Tea Room. General practice and the healthcare profession overall has been under pressure for years. And in the past few days, as we all know, the profession has also been under attack by mainstream media. All GPs are obviously affected, and that includes one particular group, that's GP practice owners. Joining us in the tea room today to talk about the challenges that owners face is Dr. Jared Dart, a director of the Australian General Practice Alliance. Dr. Dart is a GP, practice owner, and co-founder of Wellio, a telehealth platform designed to enhance practice viability. Now, the Australian General Practice Alliance was formed in 2016 to represent the interests of GP practice owners. The initial trigger for the formation of the Alliance, or AGPA, was the attacks on general practice by the Australian government and big business pathology. So its aim is to address the issues that face principle-led general practices. Jared, thanks for joining us in the tea room. You're welcome, Francis. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. It's good to have you here. Now, this crisis, which we know so much about and have known about for years, it's it's deepened in recent months. How has this affected GP clinic owners as opposed to just clinicians? Yeah, well, I think it's been hard for everyone in general practice, and that's across the board with respect to the reception, the clinical staff, and the practice managers and the owners. I mean, it really feels like we've had five years crammed into two. And, you know, from my position as an owner and, and working closely with practice managers, I've really witnessed the stress that it's put upon those two people. You know, we had to respond with systems. We had to roll out vaccines in what was a rather shambolic government program. We had to urgently pivot to manage viral illnesses whilst protecting our patients and staff. We had to rapidly look at telehealth solutions and incorporating video into our workflows manage lockdowns, manage uh, the HR issues that come with any business, but particularly with respect to burnout, challenges with recruitment, staff costs going up and the inevitable illness and the isolation periods required. So it was very challenging from the system point of view. And of course, the other part that everyone's aware of is that inflation and general inflation has been very high, but medical inflation over the last two years has been particularly high. And, you know, our costs are at least 10% higher in our practice. And that's, you know, across the board from electricity through to wages, to consumables, to cleaning, to rent, etc. So there's been a lot of cost pressures placed on us. And, you know, you add into the mix things like payroll tax, which potentially are retrospectively and could bankrupt a, a practice principal. You can understand why the stress load is significant. And all of this in the context of what's been a real decrease in revenue over the last 10 years, because even those privately billing practices haven't been able to increase their fees whilst the rebate has been stagnant. And I think one of the things that really affects a lot of GP-owned practices and the practice principals is is that the buck really stops with the practice principle. You know, you walk down the corridor and if there's a problem, you hear about it. And, you know, as is usually the way people take the good stuff for granted but get frustrated by the bad. And if you think about it, the running of a business is a lot more complicated than people think. And until you've done it, you can't really understand what's going on. And it's a bit like the duck analogy on the pond. They look like they're floating, but they're paddling furiously underneath. 
And I suppose the biggest problem is that GP practice principles have nowhere to go. You know, a GP otherwise can retrain or go on sick leave, but practice principles only really have one option, and that is to sell. And unfortunately, many are. And as we're seeing, there's an increasing non-GP ownership in the general practice space with growing corporatization. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing. So not just the challenges of providing outstanding healthcare, but as an owner facing economic challenges as well. So all that said, why do you believe GP ownership offers the best business as well as the best health outcomes? The thing about most GP-owned practices is that they really are a purpose over profit business. You know, the, the GPs are connected to clinicians. They, they know what it's, the workflow for clinicians are. They know what patient needs are. And therefore, they can design systems and processes that are reactive and appropriate. The reality of healthcare is that it's one of the most complicated, if not the most complicated industry. And there's a lot of information asymmetry that you're not, people don't know what they don't know. So you can see it time and time again with large corporate private equity-backed groups that I engage with in a clinical perspective. And generally, the service to clinicians and the service to patients seems to degrade over time rather than improve. And the other thing about the general practice ownership is that GP owners and principals have built the industry that we all know and value. And, you know, I always say to people that in my practice, which has been going since 1945, and I'm not that, I'm really standing on the shoulders of six or seven practice principals who came before me. And, you know, one of the, one of the privileges I have in my day-to-day job as a practice principal is that I can, I can leverage the connections that these people have built over time. You know, these GPs that I, I've succeeded were delivered the babies, they did the house calls, you know, they took out the appendixes, you know, they, they performed the seizures and, you know, the goodwill that that builds is incredible. And I think that I'm very grateful and very privileged to have that opportunity. Do you, do you think then we're, we're seeing a downward trend in those values, if you like? Is this, is this what the future is looking like with increased corporatization and so on? I think if we look at the pure business mechanics of general practice, some of the high value care that Nick Coatesworth seems to think he's an expert in as an infectious disease specialist is harder to deliver. And that's a funding and a system issue, but the goodwill of GPs and the practices in which they work have allowed those services to be delivered. You know, the, the, the on-the-day appointments that take longer than the scheduled slot, the procedures that aren't appropriately remunerated, you know, the care for the underprivileged or the very unwell, none of those work in a profit-driven system. And we see that in America where the system allows them to de-risk their business and to focus on high remuneration care, not high value care. So that's my concern when I see the increasing corporatization where maybe the underlying motive is more financial than it is care. Well, there is a strange perception that we can't be a business and still care. You know, even in my practice, as I've increased the services available, I've improved the facilities. Because I'm not the old clinic waiting room that existed before, they seem to think that we're less compassionate and caring of small minority of patients. So there's an unusual psychology about um, money 
care and cost and price. But, you know, ironically, almost every other sector in the healthcare market can be a business. We know pharmacies are shops, dentists charge, state health has business cases, and everyone understands that their staff have to be paid more and more each year. But I do feel strongly that this is part of the bulk billing phenomenon. You know, in a little way, we've sort of tied the rope, the, the noose that we're hanging on at the moment, because it creates this perverse expectation that healthcare should be free. They don't make good bedfellows, really, do they? Money and Medicine, which is obviously the title of one of our newsletters where we do address financial issues that the healthcare profession faces. But it, sometimes I wonder whether people think this is just an altruistic profession. You know, care is absolutely everything and finance is nice if you can get it but it's you know it's not the key thing but it's not really that straightforward is it i think the perceptions are based upon you know 20 30 year old data i mean a lot of the things that are intrinsically believed by the community is stuff they grew up with you know so 20 or 30 years ago gps were earning considerably more than they are now and in the relative position in society, they were a very privileged segment in terms of income. Whereas now we know that someone can do a software or a data analytics degree and first year or two out of university can be earning up to $300,000 a year. Whereas, you know, the GP salary range might be between 130 and 170,000 salary equivalent. You know, you can be a terrible cynic and believe that the government likes it this way. But we also have some control over whether or not we allow it to continue. When we look at the what the business situation we're faced with, given that the Medicare rebate has been increased by at most 0.5% per annum on average over the last 10 years, and that health inflation is 4% or more, if you compound the loss to practices and GPs, that's up to 50% reduction in real practice income. So people are, in the community are still believing that we're earning essentially twice what we actually are. Yeah, the, the sort of the idea of the, the rich doctor, the high earning doctor doesn't really fly when it comes to general practice, does it, I would imagine? No, and I think that's driven very much by the Medicare rebates. I mean, we essentially the Medicare rebate provides the floor price in the market. So if the clinic down the road is willing to offer $0 gap care, then the clinic up the road that's charging privately is constrained as to how much they can charge. The specialist non-GP market is not similarly constrained. The specialists typically charge three times the Medicare rebate, and if we did that in general practice, it would be $120, which would be hard for the market to bear at the moment, I think. And so that's a challenge that we face. And the reality is that the world we're living in is very, very different. And GPs are human just like anyone else. And practice owners um, should be able to make a return on what is quite a significant investment. But the community is fixed of a view that, you know, people are driving their BMWs and they have the big houses and the kids go to private schools. And on occasion, that may be true, but the financial stresses that they feel and the financial security that GPs have is not equivalent to other people who are in salaried positions. 
I was recently going for a loan for an extension for my practice. And my bank manager said, look, you know, in his experience, most GPs earn less than mid-level bankers do that are providing the loans. To. And I think that this type of stuff is an uncomfortable conversation and it creates some resentment and difficulty in some segments of the community who may be less fortunate financially. Mm. But if we're pragmatic and we're thinking about what's going to build up general practice, we have to have a proportionally viable salary model for these people who are the top school leavers who do ex significant levels of postgraduate training when you know they may be able to earn more flying out to a to a mining site and driving a truck i mean this is an unfortunate comparison but it's something we have to think about as a system if we want to get it right Mm. And and when it comes to building it up, building up general practice, as you say, and uh, that presumably involves there uh, in no small part, as we know, the government has this uh, strengthening Medicare task force going, which uh, reports at the end of the year. Do you feel that practice owners have genuine representation in the, the efforts to reform the GP sector? No, and we've been you know clear with the government about that. Essentially, they are missing out on the opportunity to take the perspective of people who run and implement general practice every day. The AMA and the RACGP are on the task force, but the reality is that many of the representatives in those organisations are not practice owners, and practice owners themselves are very busy. Even on the Australian GP Alliance, we have very committed board members who contribute a lot of time on a voluntary basis. We're all taxed and we all find it hard to make time for advocacy and, and education, which is what we're really about. And the challenge that I see is that this strengthening Medicare task force may not actually want to hear the truth. You know, I'm concerned that there's a preconceived agenda and that this is really window dressing. And, you know, if they are serious about it, I would encourage them to have GP owners on the committee because otherwise they're missing out on a really crucial part of the ecosystem. Mm, sure. So what are the things, the key things that need to change to improve the position of owners? Well, I think, you know, what's good for GPs is typically good for owners. You know, the challenges that we have as owners is that our other funding streams such as the practice incentive payments, have been essentially capped for their whole time. They have never been indexed. So things like the practice incentive payments, despite how big you get, despite how many nurses you have, despite how many patients you have, you won't ever get more than a certain amount per annum. And so that is decreasing in relative terms. But the things that I would say that would change that would help both GPs and practice owners, is that I really strongly believe we need to move incrementally and sensitively away from bulk billing and we need to stop allowing the government to set our prices. Because as I said before, if the floor price is a $0 out of pocket and that's underwritten by a stagnant rebate, we don't really have a true market. And the longer we continue to bulk bill, the harder our lives will be. So I think that's step one. And I think the college has been very brave to come out and support that for practices. And we have been running webinars on how to do that for our members. 
The other thing is that we really need to clearly present our value proposition to patients, to the community and to the funders. Now, at the moment, a large segment of the funding market, which is private health insurance, is locked out of general practice. And that is a very fraught concept. But the other funders are the state insurers, which is really the insurance of last resort when people go to hospital. And I think we need to pitch to those funders how we can solve things. We are the only whole person generalists in the system. We're the planners. We are the builders. We're the firemen. When something goes wrong, we're there to solve the problems and we can solve most problems quickly and efficiently. You know, I have colleagues on Twitter who are saying they go to emergency and they say it's so much easier than a day in general practice and the emergency physicians are, you know, aghast that that would be the case. So I think that we can, we should and we can lead truly vertically integrated care where we provide everything. In my practice, that's what I'm doing. I'm leaning into that primary, secondary care interface. And the third point I'd make is that I think we need to be much more strident in our advocacy. We know that the Pharmacy Guild is extremely effective and we know that they pay for access to politicians. They donate. They donate at a local level. And when they're disgruntled, they take out full-page ads in every newspaper, which we saw in the 2019 election campaign. We, on the other hand, rarely complain and we never pose a threat to government. We're too agreeable as a group of people and this really must change. And if that requires us to have professional lobbyists that we pay for as part of our membership organisations, so be it. Because I think the relationship between government and GPs is an abusive relationship. And like every abusive relationship, it's only going to end when either the aggrieved party, which is general practice, leaves the house or is killed or the perpetrator gets locked up, which in this case is getting voted out. Mm. Biting words, but maybe what's what's needed at this point. And you mentioned planners and builders, and I think that's that's also something at this juncture that we do, we do need to see the healthcare profession clawing its way back from the brink. That's interesting. You made that point about professional lobbyists as well. That's the one that's been made by one of the candidates for the the RACGP presidency recently. That there is really a serious need for lobby, lobbying. Yeah, look, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. I mean, I've been in meetings in you know other parts of my life where a lobbyist from a particular college, which has a particularly high remuneration model, walked into the room and all of the staffers fawned over him and the minister, basically, he had the minister's ear the whole time. And, you know, I wondered how on earth that was, but, you know, this person had been connected to that party for 20 years. He had the relationships, he had the connections and, you know, it was an ex- essentially an internal networker within the system. And, you know, we look at this current air rorting propaganda that's been put out there. And, you know, the cynic in me says this could well be part of an orchestrated campaign by one or several vested interests. And, you know, we as a group, to our detriment, are too amenable and agreeable. And I think that if you, as a business owner, you know if you can't do something, you delegate. And I think that as a profession, we should seriously think about delegating our advocacy to professionals rather than trying to do it ourselves. Well, many people are calling for an upping of the ante when it comes to the profession. So let's let's see where that goes and see if, if indeed, you know, you, you do sort of take to the take the fight to Canberra as many people are doing at the moment. 
So can you tell us a bit about what the Australian GP Alliance is doing to advance these issues? So the Australian GP Alliance is an organisation which supports and advocates for GP-owned practices, which we know make up two-thirds of all practices. To be a member, you have to work in general practice and own a general practice. We do have some associate memberships as well, but all of our members are working GPs who own their practices. And we provide education. We've just started some peer support networks, which have been incredibly popular and which we would encourage people to join where they have small group meetings and also the advocacy, which I've been leading. We've drafted policy proposals for every election and we frame our policy on what's best for the community and our patients, but also the practices in which they're delivered. And under the, the, the principles on which we work is that there are three components to a high quality primary care system. The professionals that deliver the care, the practices in which they deliver the care, and patient access, which should be affordable and which should be underwritten by the government. And as part of our policy proposals, we've made four key proposals. We'd like to see the workforce incentive payments increased and an emergency payment made to allow us to retain our nurses who are crucial for general practice. We'd like to see the government commit to developing the workforce like they do in other sectors, such as the hospitals and pharmacy so that we can offer training and retention packages for our reception and our nurses. We need the government to put in an independent pricing authority. It's something I've been pushing for five or six years now. Medicare and other funding mechanisms need to be delivered on the basis of evidence. And as part of that, they need to immediately correct the underfunding of general practice, which is equivalent to about $5 billion per year. And the last is about that access, the patient access, and the Medicare safety net and the enhanced safety net provisions need to be simplified. It needs to be one threshold for PBS and MBS, and it needs to be more accessible with more tiers so that patients can access support for the care that they need without having financial considerations limited. And following on from what you said earlier about lobbying, I can see that there's definitely some work there to be done. This is not this is going to be a very uphill battle, isn't it? I think that, you know, I, I do a fair bit of mental health and general practice. And one of the things that have been most helpful for me is to being clear and firm with boundaries with patients. So one of the things I say to people if I have a long-term counselling relationship is, I'm not your father, I'm not your uncle, I'm not your brother, I'm not your friend, I'm your healthcare professional. And I think that setting boundaries in a similar way with the government will mean that we will get a system which the community and our patients deserve and which supports general practice. And that's the wish list for the Australian GP Alliance, reflecting many themes that we're hearing from the profession at these rather troubled times. Thanks for joining us, Jared. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. That was Dr. Jared Dart, Director of the Australian GP Alliance. And I'm Francis Wilkins. Thanks for joining us in the Tea Room. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. And if you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at francis at medicalrepublic.com.au. Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.